welcome back officially. I'm Will Westerkow, and you're listening to This Is Modern Rock, the music podcast that takes a look back at the Billboard Modern Rock charts one month at a time. Today, we're going to be talking about January 1991, but first, I'd like to introduce my guest host, David Greenwald. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. David, you've worked as a music critic. That's right. Yeah, I I was a uh, professional music critic and arts and entertainment reporter for many years. Worked here at the Oregonian for almost four years and previously at Billboard and the LA Times. So, uh, and also ran a music blog for a long time back in the MP3 blog era of the 2000s. Yeah. And uh, you also do some music photography as well? I do. Yeah. I've always shot shows as well as uh, reviewing. So, you really got to shoot pretty much everybody when I was at the Oregonian anytime, you know, Paul McCartney or Rush or whoever is coming through, uh, which was great. And went to South by Southwest for many years and was doing shows out there and tried to just shoot as many bands as I could. Cool. Do you have any stories about like how you got into music? Were you a music listener from the time you were a small child or was there like a moment where... Yeah. I mean, my dad is a big music fan and he got me into all the classic rock, all the boomer stuff of his youth. So of course the Beatles, but the Who and Neil Young and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Joni Mitchell and a, a ton of folk. And then when I got into middle school, it was a switch that just flipped in my head and I was obsessed with music all of a sudden and was like watching VH1 every day. You know, that was when all these bands like Matchbox 20 and Third Eye Blind and all these bands were coming out and I just really liked all of them and discovered Y107 and the the Chris Carter Mess show was really like an entryway for me to, to get into underground music and indie rock and Pitchfork was just getting started and so I was starting to read that, you know, in school and meet the indie kids in mm-hmm. high school, like the three or four kids, right, who knew who Bell and Sebastian was right, yeah. at my high school. Um, and then from there, yeah, I got into Napster and file sharing and the whole music piracy era and got into writing about music and doing my blog and things like that. So uh, I've, I've just been always obsessed with new music and discovery. I mean, I've been listening to uh, Vince Guaraldi a lot lately and, you know, only knew him as the guy from Charlie Brown. Mm-hmm. Right. But of course, he has so many terrific albums. And it's like if you can be someone who has listened to music professionally for like 15 years and go back to 1964 and find some classic thing you didn't know existed. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's what keeps me interested in music. Yeah. It's a big part of why I do the show. I'm just discovering so many bands I've never heard of. And as I do research on them, I find, Hey, there's some really cool classic lost albums here, not yeah. available online even. Yeah, so I've been true. tracking down some albums and that's been kind of a fun little treasure hunt too. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. So let's talk 1991. In January of 1991, Rod Carew was elected into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, which set the stage for the 1996 number 25 modern rock hit, The Hanukkah Song by Adam Sandler. Right, right a classic. Who mentions Rod Carew in the Hall song. Hall of Famer Rod Carew. Yeah, <laughs> that was right. the first thing I thought of when you mentioned that. Yep. Also, though, big news. In January 1991, Desert Storm begins. And Iraq starts launching Scud missiles at Israel and Saudi Arabia. And on January 27th, amid fears of terrorism, Super Bowl 25 carries on without a hitch. And the halftime show was New Kids on the Block. Wow. On the modern rock charts, the Sisters of Mercy are still at the top spot with their number one hit, More. That's going to stay at number one for two more weeks for a total of five weeks on top. And then during week three of January, we get a new number one, and that is called Kinky Afro by the Happy Mondays. You a Happy Mondays fan? You know, I've never really listened to them. Really? I saw that movie, 24-Hour Party People, so I know a little bit. Okay. But yeah, your picks for this week, I think, are actually all going to stump me, which is great. I love that. Yeah, cool. 
the Happy Mondays were formed in the greater Manchester area in 1980. They're led by frontman Sean Ryder, and they were signed to Factory Records in the mid-80s. In late 1990, the Happy Mondays released their third album entitled Pills and Thrills and Belly Aches. It was produced by British DJ Paul Oakenfold and Steve Osborne, and they helped to add a little more house music sound to the Happy Mondays psychedelic dance rock. And the result was a big hit for the Mondays, especially in England. And the album is considered by many to be the high point of the Manchester scene. So the first single off the album was Step On. It climbed to number 57 on the U.S. Hot 100, making it the Happy Mondays' biggest hit in America. And the second single, which we're going to hear, is called Kinky Afro. The original song title was Groovy Afro, but the band The Farm had a song called Groovy Train, which charted in late 1990. And the Happy Mondays were like, oh, oh no. Got to change your song yeah, title. We can't have two groovy songs in a row. So they changed it to Kinky Afro instead. It was a number one hit on the modern rock charts for one week. Here it is, Kinky Afro. I so I take it greedy And all the bad things I feed me. I guess we could start with the obvious. So that song clearly interpolates Patti LuBelle's Lady Marmalade. Ah, okay, right. This song was built around a bass line that was heavily inspired by the hot chocolate song Brother Louie. And I'm going to play just a little clip of Brother Louie so you can hear that groove that they were drawing off of. So if that sounds familiar to some of my listeners, it could be because a different version of that was used as a theme song for Louis C.K.'s comedy series, Louis. Right, yeah. right. I've heard this one a lot. This You said this is maybe the first time you've heard this one? I have never heard this song. Yeah, what did, what did you think? Oh, I thought it was great. Yeah. The 80s didn't end in the 80s. Right. Right. Yeah. So this is definitely still carrying over a lot of the uh, the sound and the feeling of that era. But I also can hear it as like the predecessor of Oasis and and Travis and a lot of this British guitar music that would come out over the course of the 90s and even really into the early 2000s. Uh, you can definitely hear them as like the parent of that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it really made me want to hear more. As I thought it was a great song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that really strikes me is when I think about this band, I think of them as being a little dangerous almost. But if you just listen to the music without Sean Ryder singing, it's not that tough of music. It's kind of jangly guitars and not really heavy in any sort of way. Right. But his vocal delivery, there's just something about it that's just a little menacing maybe. Yeah, he has a lot of swagger. Yeah. He's definitely from the Mick Jagger school. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. The, uh, the chorus, uh, the lyric about how... It, he had to crucify somebody today. It's kind of an interesting lyric because, okay, here's this white British band, mm-hmm. right, who's saying that. I mean, this is also at the same time as gangster rap. And they're not going to say, well, I didn't have to use my AK today. Right. You know, but this is how they would communicate that kind of idea. So yeah. I thought that was an interesting lyric. Sure, yeah. So after the Happy Mondays released Pills and Thrills and Belly Aches, they went out to record their follow-up album. At the time, they had a pretty severe drug habit. Some of the members uh, were really into heroin. And so the plan was they were going to ship the band to Barbados, where apparently you can't get heroin. But before they left, 
they had briefly kicked out or lost their guitarist. And so the band called up Johnny Marr, formerly of the Smiths, and they said, oh, hey, do you mind coming around to our flat? We'd like to talk to you about something. And he's like, okay, sure. So he drives around to the Happy Mondays apartment and they're like, we lost our guitarist. He's like, oh, okay, great. Do you need me to recommend a guitarist for you? And they're like, no, we want you to come to Barbados with us like tomorrow <laughs> and be the guitarist for the Happy Mondays. And he's like, oh, okay, well, this seems crazy. But when he goes to try to leave, he notices they've got some large bouncer type dudes kind of blocking the exit way. He actually is a little fearful about his safety. Wow. And so Johnny Marr agrees to join the Happy Mondays and be their guitarist. And then he leaves and he, he just about gets home. He turns around. He says, this is crazy. I'm not doing this. And he goes right back to the apartment, knocks on the door. And he's like, I can't do this. I'm not, I'm not going to be the guitarist for your band. And uh, I guess Sean Ryder acted like really hurt. Like, I can't believe you're doing this. You're leaving the band. Like, how could you? You let us down. So Johnny Marr sort of kidnapped briefly. Wow. 25 minutes in the Happy Mondays. Yeah. And then the band, of course, went to Barbados. They blew all their money on crack cocaine. They didn't record any vocals while there because Sean Ryder didn't get around to writing any lyrics. And they came back and the album was a huge commercial flop. Yeah. And it ultimately ended up being the cause of the collapse of Factory Records. Johnny Marr could have prevented this whole thing. That's right. I mean, of course, if Johnny Marr had just gone to Barbados with them. Right. All right. After one week on top, another band comes along to take the top spot, and that is Sting. Sting is a musician and an actor, and he's probably best known as the singer and bassist for The Police. And he earned his nickname in his early days playing jazz with the Phoenix Jazzmen because he would frequently wear a striped black and yellow sweater. And his bandmates thought it made him look like a bee or a wasp. I'm glad they went with Sting. They could have easily called him B-Boy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Something like that, waspy. Yeah. Um, Sting sounds much cooler. Right up there with Flea. Yeah. As yeah. insect-related yeah, uh, musician yeah, names. Yeah, That's an interesting thing, I guess. You can have a nickname that is not really very cool, but if you're cool... Suddenly, like, you don't think twice about it. You just go, oh, yeah, Flea. Flea's a good name. Right. Like, I wouldn't want to be called Flea. Right. But uh, Flea is awesome. So, therefore, Flea becomes a cool name. Right. And two great bassists as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, Sting is a pretty legendary dude. He has, at this point, 17 Grammy Awards, including one that he won in 2019 for Best Reggae Album with his collaboration with Shaggy. Whoa, I didn't know that existed, but yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, and you know what? I was like, oh, that's ridiculous, Shaggy, haha. And I looked up one of their songs, and I'm like, I actually kind of like this. Yeah. So I'm not like a reggae expert or anything, but um, I was enjoying what I was hearing. Somehow the Sting-Shaggy combo worked for me. It worked for uh, the Grammy voters, too. Yeah. Sting has sold over 100 million albums worldwide, in 2019, he received a BMI award because Every Breath You Take, the classic police song, it became the most played song in radio history. Wow. As an actor, Sting first appeared in Quadrophenia, which is an adaptation of the Who album by the same name. And he played the Ace Face, King of the Mods. 
Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I didn't realize he was in the movie when I watched it. And then all of a sudden, there he is. He's like in a crowd of kids and he's like the coolest dude of all. And all the mods are looking up to him for fashion sense and for leading them. And there's like a huge brawl in town between the mods and the rockers or whatever. Right. And spoiler alert for those of you who have not seen it, but like the big ending is that uh, the hero of the story who's really looking up to Ace Face he goes to this hotel and he realizes that Sting is working as like a bellhop at the hotel. And it's just such a letdown to see him like working for the man wearing right. the uniform and he's disillusioned by the whole thing. Right, right. Well, so, you know, the struggle of working yeah. in, the, uh, in the hospitality industry. Of course, yeah. What else? He's been in a bunch of stuff. He played uh, Baron Frankenstein in The Bride. I remember him in Dune, right? Dune, yes, he was in Dune. Yeah. Absolutely. He was also in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Right. And he appeared in an episode of The Simpsons in 1992. And I'm going to play a short clip of that. Here we go. But this isn't about show business. This is about some kid down a hole or, or something. And we've all got to do what we can. There's a hole in my heart as deep as the well for that poor little boy who's stuck halfway to hell. Though we can't get him out, we'll do the next best thing. And go on TV and sing. Sing, sing. And we're That's pretty fun. 1985, Sting released his first solo album, and he never officially disbanded the police, although they didn't reform for more than two decades. But by 1991, Sting was on his third solo album, and it was called The Soul Cages. And I looked this one up. The Soul Cages is actually a fairy tale from the 1800s, and it involves a fisherman who meets a marrow which I guess is a male mermaid. Mm. And he goes down to his undersea cabin and discovers that the marrow has collected the lost souls of drowned sailors. And he keeps them in lobster pots. And Like you do. Yeah, of course. And he thinks he's doing a good thing. That's my understanding. He's like, oh yeah, they were just floating around lost forever. I'm going to keep them in these lobster pots, which I call soul cages. And now they're like safe and warm. And the, the fisherman is really upset by this. And so he concocts some kind of plan to set all the souls free. Presumably Sting was aware of this fairy tale and it's not just a coincidence that he named his album this. Right. And I would say that makes sense that he would know this because the album is a concept album. It deals heavily with the sea and fishing and there's a lot of boat imagery and water imagery. Yeah. Um, Well, and he, that's his background too. He grew up in a shipbuilding town. That's right. And this album was also dedicated to his father, who had died in 1987. And after his father's death, Sting had kind of a a couple years of writer's block. And it wasn't until he really sat down and dealt with his father's death through songwriting that he was able to like break through. And um, that's what this album really is. It's like an album about and to his father. So this is the first single from the album. It's called All This Time. And it went to number five on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on both the modern rock charts and the album rock charts.
That song made me really happy that Nirvana came along and made it okay for drums to sound good again on studio recordings. Yeah. I mean, those drums could have sounded worse for sure, but you can hear the just the, the decade of bad drum ideas happening still in that recording. What particularly about the drums did you not like? It's not the giant gated reverb sound that you get on like Phil Collins or whatever, but mm-hmm. just a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's an interesting mix. I mean, it's like these years around the turn of the decade are always these, you know, just a huge transition in, in studio styles and in the kinds of artists people are interested in. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think, around these decade turns, right, where people are still clinging to the old sound mm-hmm. and trying to bring it forward. I mean, it's kind of like with the Happy Mondays song, too, where you can really hear it kind of hitting the end of the line of what people wanted to do Mm -hmm. uh, over the previous, you know, five, 10 years. And, you know, Nirvana is about to happen. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear things in that context. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think I appreciate this song more than I actually like it, maybe. It's a little directionless. Like, it's a pretty good song. It's driving. It's got a nice chorus, but you don't find yourself sinking into it. It's not super dynamic, Mm -hmm. you know? There's not, like, really a point to take a break and think about what the song's doing. Sure. When all is said and done, it's veering a little too much into adult contemporary, perhaps. Right. Yeah. But not enough. Yeah, not enough. Yeah. Yeah, not enough to be fields of gold. Yeah, exactly. The other thing is, I get a really strong Paul Simon vibe from... Yeah, Graceland. Yeah, absolutely. Like... If you just like took Sting off of this, and Sting, I don't know, Sting did a great job singing, and I, and I like his voice, but if you put Paul Simon over this song and said, this is a Paul Simon song, I'd be like, yep, it, it is. Right. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking the same thing, actually. Yeah. yeah. There is one interesting thing about this album I didn't mention. Around this time, CDs were still being sold in long boxes. Are you familiar with these? No, okay, before so, my time. Okay, so in record stores, the little cubbies that hold the records, they're kind of deep. Right. Because records are large, right? And so when CDs come in, if you put the records into the same boxes, you can't see them because they're way down in the bottom of a hole. So they create these long boxes, which basically it's like the CD sitting at the top of a whole bunch of extra packaging material. And a lot of artists didn't like this. They thought it was wasteful. There was like an environmental movement going on at the time. They were saying, you know, we're killing trees needlessly. We don't need to have all this extra packaging. So Sting, he said, you know what? I've got an idea. I'm going to package this album in a piece of cardboard which folds into its own long box and then you refold it a different way and it becomes a cardboard sleeve that is CD sized. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. The um, long box controversy. That's it. Yeah. And obviously you don't see long boxes anymore. Right. So I don't know. Only for comic books. That's that's right. Yeah. So that's all the number ones we have for the month of January. We're going to go down to number two. And we're going to talk about an artist who we've had on the show quite a bit. And that's Morrissey. Right. Former singer and lyricist for the Smiths. You know, I've given a lot of backstory on Morrissey before. So I don't really want to go into the whole history of the Smiths thing again. But one thing we haven't really talked about is Morrissey as the social pariah at this point. Right. You know, it's interesting because... He was very mysterious and elusive in his lyrics, right? For many years, and it was mm-hmm. controversial of like, well, is he, is he, maybe is he a racist? Mm-hmm. You know, does he have some really like unfortunate views? And it was, I think, a debate at the time, certainly, and continuing for years. And there was a really terrific piece about this kind of grappling with Morrissey a few years ago. Uh, I think Sean Nelson was the writer okay. of that piece. 
but yeah, he he kind of decided in the last few years, you know, he's associating with this far right group and uh, I, I haven't followed the news too carefully because it's kind of too depressing. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't I'm not gonna stop listening to his music. I'm not gonna go pay for a ticket to his show. It's kinda how I feel about it. I mean, the way I always feel with the artist versus the art debate is, you know, ultimately you kind of have to decide where you stand on an intellectual level of like, well, I don't want to give this person any more money because they're a bad person. And then you have the visceral level of like, well, I still love this music or actually it makes me want to barf so I can't Mm -hmm. absorb it anymore. And I think that's just, you know, someone you're going to have your personal reaction to whatever it is. Um, And I'm not going to stop listening to the Smiths, but I've seen Morrissey before and he's great. And, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking to see Morrissey and, and someone like Ryan Adams, who I'm also was a huge fan of. He really was my favorite artist to see these folks just decide, well, I'm just going to be a terrible person Mm -hmm. and piss through my legacy and (laughs) disappoint my fans. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up is because just this last October, 2019 in Portland, Oregon, a Morrissey fan, well, former fan probably, uh, attended his concert and was waving protest signs and Morrissey stopped the show and said, I'm not going to carry on until we get this person out of here. So get out. And that ended up in the news. It's a, it's a confusing thing because on the one hand, I've read a number of articles. They seem to suggest that Morrissey has said or done some not great things, mainly uh, supporting a far-right anti-Islam political group in England. Right. But this kind of thing has followed him his entire career. And it always seemed like it was a bunch of nonsense for the most part. And I'm still inclined to believe that a lot of that early stuff was a bunch of nonsense, but it just gets really confusing. You know, Morrissey comes out and he says, I despise racism. I despise fascism. And I'm supporting this party who is the only party who can keep Britain, Britain or whatever it is. Right. So I often feel like there's this thing in America where you're, either this or you're that, like, are you right wing? Are you left wing? And you choose one of these and you stay in the party line and you fit all these things and check all these boxes. Morrissey, clearly he has some beliefs, which uh, would put him very much into like a liberal left wing camp. He's very outspoken against Trump, for instance, and he was very outspoken against Bush as a president. And then there's these other things that clearly seem very right wing. And he's uh, uses terms like the loony left and things like that. So it's uh, not not super easy to make sense of, I suppose. Right, right. But regardless. Yeah, wonderful uh, singer. Yeah, wonderful singer. Yeah, I mean, he's just released so much good music and he's just dominating the modern rock charts at this point through the late 80s and early 90s. So by 1991, Morrissey was a few months away from releasing his second solo album, which was called Kill Uncle. And he had just released the fourth consecutive non-album single. And all of those were collected on a a compilation called Bona Drag. Right. This single that we're going to be hearing, which hit number two on the modern rock charts, is called Piccadilly Polare. And the term Polare or Polari, it refers to a type of slang that was used by a gay subculture, as well as sailors, wrestlers, actors, and apparently Punch and Judy, if you're Mm. familiar with the the Mm -hmm. puppet show. Yes. And that sparked a little bit of outrage too at the time because some people felt like he shouldn't be singing a song about some uh, subculture that he's not a part of. So uh, he just always seems to be in the thick of it for one reason or another. Right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. This song, as I said, was compiled on Bona Drag. And Bona Drag is also Polare slang, which means nice outfits or something Mm. like that. 
And uh, the song we're about to hear is, uh, I suppose, about male prostitution. Let's go ahead and listen to it. This is Piccadilly Polare. On the rack I was, easy meat and You know, it's I don't get to hear a new new to me Morrissey song every day. And I thought I was a pretty serious Smiths Morrissey fan, but I guess I've never heard Bona Drag. Yeah. Uh, and I haven't heard that song before. It was pretty good. I was kind of in a similar position. I had the best of Morrissey for a long time. And, right. uh, and then I went back and picked up most of Morrissey's solo albums, but I didn't get Bone and Drag for the longest time because I just thought of it as like another best of, and I'm like, I already have a best of, and now I've got right. all these albums. I mean, it's like singles by the Smiths too. Yeah, exactly. And so since Piccadilly Polare uh, was not on any of the albums, that one kind of slipped through the cracks for me. And... um I knew most of his output before I heard that song. So it was it was a pleasure for me to listen to when I first heard it as well. And that one's really grown on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also would say that I don't have a lot of objectivity when it comes to Morrissey songs. Well, he's just one of the most emotionally convincing singers of all time. Mm-hmm. And it almost doesn't matter what's happening in the song because he's going to connect with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that being said, the album that comes out in March 1991 is kind of a dud of an album. You know, it's not to say there's not some good stuff on there, but it is one of his lesser albums for sure. And I think it's a big step down in quality from the singles he had been putting out up to that time. It's interesting that he and Sting are kind of back to back on this chart. And you have these two guys who have gone solo Mm -hmm. after these enormous band careers yeah and you can almost feel the generation waiting for someone new to pop up and say hey it's okay you can listen to something else now yeah and also it's interesting to think about like where their careers went you know staying did kind of go more adult contemporary and he was really embraced i don't think he had an album that didn't go platinum in the u.s until 2006 if i'm not mistaken right uh whereas morrissey uh he never had that kind of huge breakthrough he's always had fans and he certainly has developed a cult following in the u.s but he never had that crossover and maybe because he you know refused or wasn't interested in in going in that adult contemporary direction Mm -hmm. anything about the music i mean it's kind of standard issue morrissey sure it doesn't really do anything that surprises you and yet it's good yeah yeah all right well number two is held off the top spot by sting couldn't quite get there but we've got one more band we're going to check out uh, obviously, there was a bunch of stuff on the charts we didn't hear. I was surprised to see the Goo Goo Dolls made oh. their first chart appearance here in 1991. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and also, the replacements are making possibly their last stand on the modern rock charts before they fall apart. Yeah. And of course, you know, especially early Goo Goo Dolls are very much followers of the replacements. Yeah. They could, re- you could really see them as like, you know, second generation replacements in the way that Nirvana created the grunge explosion. Then you have all these bands who clearly, you know, grew up on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, even getting into that kind of whole era of like the late nineties music that they were, uh, helped spearhead, you know, is, is very much like bands who had grown, grown up on their replacements and then, uh, went through this, whatever polished major label thing to get onto the radio, yeah. you know, but yeah, I mean, clearly like a huge, that was a band who cast a big shadow on the nineties. Mm-hmm. 
So we're going to be looking at a number 23 chart entry. And this is, I believe, the one and only time that the Pogues landed on the modern rock charts. This is a, an English band. They were formed in London in 1982, although they are kind of a Celtic punk band. So they draw on a lot of traditional Irish sounds. And the band was originally called Pogue Mahone, which is Gaelic for kiss my ass. But they uh, changed it after a little bit of pressure, probably from radio programmers or something like that. Oh, you can't get on the modern rock charts with that name. No, no. All right, so in late 1990, the Pogues released their fifth album called Hell's Ditch, and this was produced by Joe Strummer from The Clash. But the band was having problems with their leader, Shane McGowan, who had become unreliable largely due to substance abuse problems. In 1991, shortly after the release of this album, the band kicked their lead singer, Shane McGowan, out of the band. And for the rest of the tour for this album, Joe Strummer of The Clash took over as the lead vocalist of The Pogues. I did not know that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Some few lucky people. I say that, but I mean, obviously seeing Shane McGowan as the leader of The Pogues is also extraordinary. He's a really great singer of the band, but... um, that would be cool to see Joe Strummer also fronting the Pogues, I'm sure. So Sunny Side of the Street, it was the only single released from Hell's Ditch. It reached number 23 on the modern rock charts. Here it is. It's interesting to hear all these songs in the context of pre-Nirvana, mm-hmm. and maybe I'm just thinking too much about Nirvana. But you know, '91 is kind of a, a void in my a gap in my listening. Yeah, like I couldn't tell you what my top five albums of 1991 are, sure. right? And you get a little bit later, and then you get into Nirvana and Wu Tang Clan, and just a lot more music that I would be really uh, knowledgeable about or, or interested in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, 91, I you know I haven't known any of these songs. Yeah. It's all just like, oh, this is what people were listening to on the radio. Okay, cool. And none of them are really that rocking. Uh-huh. You know, you can hear why somebody would be suddenly blown away. You know, you're listening to all these kind of middle of the road, you know, UK bands, and all of a sudden you hear Nirvana. Yeah. And you hear Dave Kroll yeah. and Kurt Cobain. Oh, yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, right. Yeah, we could be listening to this on on the modern rock station. Sure, which isn't to say this stuff's not good. I I enjoy the Pogues a lot. I'm I'm a big fan, and I like Sunny Side of the Street. But right. uh, Nirvana is certainly looming large over this season of This Is Modern Rock. When people think 1991, that's what they think. They think Nirvana. They think Nevermind. That's not going to happen until November. So we've got right. we've got a ways to go. Right. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. This is making me want to go back and just go through the charts and make some playlists and see what was going on back there. Yeah. Yeah, what I want to say about the Pogues here, at this point in their career, they had been making a move away from traditional Irish sound. So for this album and the previous album, there was kind of some interband tension where some of the band wanted to go one way and the other band wanted to go the other way. So they, they were kind of pulling towards more of like a standard rock sound. But I don't hear that with this song. This definitely seems pretty rooted in the Irish tradition. You almost hear them becoming Mumford and Son's dad. Uh-huh, really? Like, yeah. I haven't listened to a ton of the Pogues, 
but that seemed like a real clear predecessor to me. Except I think Shane McGowan's got a, a much rawer, more authentic voice of the people on the streets. Right. As opposed to, what's his face? Somebody Mumford. I don't know. Yeah, Mr. Mumford. <laughs> Mr. Mumford. Papa yeah. Mumford. Yeah. And the other thing about this is, you know, if you listen to early Pogues albums, there's a lot of songs about people who are kind of down and out and, and drunk and on uh, the wrong side of the tracks or like having a, a tough time, a tough go of it in their life. This song is not like that. This is a, a much happier, upbeat, sunny kind of song. It, Unless they're sticking something in there that I didn't catch in the lyrics, it, it really does seem like kind of a, a positive, happy song. And he's still a gritty singer. I yes. mean, he's still, I mean, much in the same way of the Happy Mondays, mm-hmm. you know, the vocal is the source of kind of the, the, the rock energy. Yeah. yeah. I have not seen this. I wish I had a chance to see this before I did the show, but the Pogues appear in an Alex Cox film called Straight to Hell. And Alex Cox, he's the director of Repo Man and Sid and Nancy. Oh, I okay. So he's very much interested in music. He has a lot of friends who are in the music business. And in fact, it's not just the Pogues, but Joe Strummer's in the film. Courtney Love is in this film. And this appears to be like a Western, like a spaghetti Western sort of deal, except starring a whole bunch of musicians. Yeah. And uh, the Pogues, they play a coffee-addicted outlaw gang and they show up in a truck in this western town with like espresso machines strapped to their truck that sounds incredible yeah so uh, i gotta track this one down yeah okay well that was it that was our our four songs uh like you said all of these are english bands uh nothing particularly super heavy on the rock any other things that you noticed Oh, uh, I don't know. These are all good songs. If mm-hmm. I heard them on the radio in 1991, I wouldn't be mad about it. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, certainly the overall quality of what you were hearing at the time, I think, is dramatically better than what you would hear now. I mean, Billboard just put out their list of the the top rock songs of the decade. Yeah, uh, and it is just abysmal. Sure, it's not. None of those are things that you you ever want to listen to. Yeah. I mean, this is why everyone decided to listen to Drake mm-hmm. in the 2010s, because exactly. because rock music was so terrible. Exactly. Is there anything you want to promote or send people to check out or anything? Sure. Like I'm not as active on the internet as I have been for the last oh, 20 years, uh, but you can follow my podcast, uh, which is called Pretty Little Grown Men. It's kind of on, it is on hiatus, I should say, or I don't know if we're ever coming back. But if you are interested in some movie and music criticism and some mostly recaps of the canceled show, Pretty Little Liars, uh, that's what that podcast was about. And uh, you can check my site out, uh, Rock Blog, R-A-W-K Blog. I'm still doing some music stuff on there every once in a blue moon and writing about code stuff and various things. So Okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, if you want to write in and tell us why we're amazing or whatever, you can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. If you'd like to hear more from This Is Modern Rock, you can find us on iTunes and Spotify. And if you like what you hear, I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a five-star review. It really helps get the word out so other people can find this podcast more easily. David, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time in February 1991.